Disasters. True Stories. Narrated by Brad Carty. The Crash of German Wings A320. It was nine hours and 40 minutes this March 24th, 2015, at the Center en Route de la Navigation Ariane Sud-Est in Aix-en-Provence, France. A controller saw on his radar an Airbus A320 suddenly disappear, and his heart skipped a beat. He had been trying in vain for almost 10 minutes to contact the crew of German Wings, which had left Barcelona, Spain that morning for Dusseldorf, Germany. The plane had left its cruising altitude of 38,000 feet without authorization, descending inexorably on one side and gaining speed on the other. Immediately alerted, the military authorities had a mirage take off at 9.48 a.m. from its base. The fighter reached the indicated area, but did not see any aircraft in the air. Below, the French Alps stretched out, where an Air France flight from Paris to Saigon had mysteriously come to an end as early as 1953. The worst fears were beginning to be confirmed, and no one any longer really expected to see the mute aircraft in the sky. At 10.30 a.m., the French high mountain rangers were contacted by the air defense. Captain David Hurot, on duty at the end of the morning, took the call and had to repeat the information three times before he could completely assimilate it. At 11.04 a.m., Chokas 04, a rescue helicopter with two gendarmes and an emergency doctor on board, took off and followed the route of the A320 from the last beacon it passed. Minutes later, it flew over a mountain range and finally located, in an isolated area, the crash site. Nothing remained of the Airbus. The debris of the plane was spread out over seven and a half acres of the mountain, with all the trees torn off on the ground. The impact was so violent that there was not a single recognizable part left, except for a piece of the fuselage large enough to contain the aircraft's registration. There is no road in the area, so the rescuers accessed the wreckage by helicopter or on foot, driven by the tiny hope of finding survivors. The enterprise was hopeless, and despite themselves, they came across bits of bodies or remnants of their personal belongings, a half-burnt passport, oxidized money, an amputated comforter. The news came in, and phones all over the world vibrated with the effect of a funeral notice. The 144 passengers and six crew members had all perished in the accident. A quick calculation was chilling. The tail of a plane 164 feet long, propelled at a speed of 435 miles per hour, took only one twenty-fifth of a second to reach the nose during the impact. That is to say, the time of a subliminal image. At Dusseldorf Airport, the flight was still posted, although without an arrival time. The hall was evacuated, and the parents of the victims were summoned by the police to a quickly established psychological office. The same protocol was put in place in Barcelona. While the organization of the rescue operation was taking place in France, 
priority was given to the identification of the bodies, thanks to indications provided by the clothes, the luggage taken away, and also DNA samples. Nothing could console the bereaved families, neither the promise of being able to bury their loved ones with dignity, nor the condolences expressed by François Hollande, Philippe VI, or Angela Merkel. As for Karsten Spohr, CEO of the Lufthansa Group and its subsidiary German Wings, he may have expressed all his thoughts and prayers, declaring that his company was currently experiencing the darkest hours of its history, but his speech did not provide any details on the circumstances of the tragedy. Too bad, because this is the only question on everyone's mind. What really happened? Mechanical failure? Hijacking? An attack preventing the commander from reporting his distress? At the end of the day, the mystery remained. The next day, a race against time began in which it became urgent to understand the reasons for the drama while the bodies were discreetly evacuated. In the town of Vernay, the closest access point to the secured site, more and more journalists and curious people gathered. On the spot, more than 300 gendarmes and forensic experts were mobilized to sort out the debris from the pieces of flesh. One of them finally found, under a pile of rubble, the black box containing the transcript of the conversations between the pilots. The precious discovery was transferred to Paris, and in the afternoon the BEA, an organization of the Ministry of Transport, held a press conference at its headquarters in Le Bourget. There was general disappointment when its director announced that it was still too early to draw any conclusions. Studying the soundtracks, distinguishing the voices, and determining the different maneuvers carried out proved to be a lengthy task. Against all odds, during the night of March 25th, 26th, the New York Times put an end to the suspense and stated in its article that it was not an accident, but a voluntary act caused by a member of the crew. How did they get the scoop? BEA, civil aviation, gendarmerie? Someone must have given them the information from the black box. The origin of the leak will never be revealed. In the early morning, the Marseille police prosecutor in charge of the investigation publicly confessed, not without shame, that he had been informed of the accident by reading the American newspaper and launched into a minute-by-minute -minute reconstruction of the catastrophic scenario. Back to March 24, 2015. It's 8.30 in the morning at Barcelona El Prat International Airport. On the tarmac, Captain Patrick Sontheimer, in his 30s and with 6,760 flight hours under his belt, is inspecting his Airbus A320-211, the oldest of its series still in operation. In the cockpit, his co-pilot, Andreas Lubitz, 27, is also checking the various instruments on the instrument panel. Time is running out. A low-cost airline is not one if it is not able to land and take off again as soon as possible. Despite an estimated delay of 20 minutes, the green light is finally given for boarding, scheduled for gate B, 
a terminal where 144 passengers from 18 different countries, including Germany and Spain in the majority, are rushing to board. One meets an interior decorator expected at the inauguration of a clothing store, fearful of finding himself next to a class of 16 overexcited high school students from the Rhineland, back from a linguistics day, and contained as best they could by their too tired teachers. Two German opera singers, a baritone and a contralto, accompanied by her husband and 18-month son, were also present. Last night, they were acclaimed at the Grand Theater of the Liceau during a performance of Siegfried, a work by Richard Wagner. Finally, two Iranian sports reporters, with stars in their eyes, passionately discussed the football game they had attended the day before. At nine o'clock sharp, everyone is settled, belts buckled. The stewards finish the choreographed reminder of the security measures, and the Airbus accelerates and leaves the runway. At 9.27 a.m., the plane reached its cruising altitude over the Gulf of Lyon. The conditions were excellent, and the arrival in Dusseldorf was still scheduled in one hour. On the outskirts of Marseille, at 9.30 a.m., the pilots confirmed the instructions given by the control tower and sent their last message. This is where the black box revealed the dark truth. A handful of seconds after the radio signal, the captain told his partner that he had not had the opportunity to go to the bathroom before takeoff and decided to briefly abandon his post, leaving the co-pilot with the whole responsibility for flying the plane. However, the toilets next to the cockpit were out of order, and Patrick Sondheimer had to use the ones on the opposite side of the cockpit in the tail. At the same time, the altitude selected on the control panel varied instantaneously from 38,000 feet to the smallest available value, 98 feet. At 9.31 a.m., the Airbus crossed the coast at Toulon and started its descent. The maneuver went unnoticed. Nobody seemed to worry about it. However, one has only to look at the dials. The speed does not stop climbing, while at the same time the altitude falls unrelentingly at a rate of 3,500 feet per minute. At 9.33 a.m., the anomaly alerted the controller in Aix-en-Provence, but his attempts to communicate with the plane were unsuccessful. At 9.34 a.m., the captain came back from his bathroom break and realized that something was wrong. At a run, he went up the aisle and, once at the front, asked for access to the cockpit. The authorization was slow in coming, so he retyped the entry code on the numeric keyboard, but the door remained closed. He then lost his temper and knocked on it while shouting the name of his co-pilot, and his panic did not reassure the passengers. At 9.39 a.m., the black box picked up violent blows against the armored door. We can imagine the captain, desperate, grabbing a fire extinguisher or a fire axe to force his way into the cockpit. In the background, the screams of the passengers, the prayers, the cries resound. Soon, the screams were covered by the deafening alarm of the ground proximity warning system. Between two sirens, a mechanical voice, anything but reassuring, ordered the pilots to pull up at all costs. At 9.40 a.m., the A320 escaped radar contact, sailing at 6,000 feet above sea level 
crossing the Alps at 435 miles per hour. In the cockpit, observing the terrain coming closer, Andreas Lubitz remained mute, deaf to the pleas of his colleague and to the panic on the board. Only his breathing is perceptible, a calm, relaxed, controlled breath, giving rhythm to the last minute until the impact against the mountain resounds. End of the tape, leaving place to a silence from beyond the grave. While taking care to cut out the last moments, considered unbearable, the authorities agreed to let the families listen to the recording, and they immediately saw that Andreas Lubitz was a murderer. His face was broadcast around the world. The German police searched his apartment in Dusseldorf and came out with arms full of boxes of antidepressants. They also found two work stoppages signed by doctors, covering the period from March 12th to 30th, torn in two and thrown into a garbage can. He was not fit to fly and should never have embarked. The analysis of his history on the Internet drove the point home. He typed in his search engine, cyanide, valium, quantity of sleeping pills to cause death, fastest death, suicide train. In counterpoint, the black box had not said its last word. On the contrary, it had preserved all the data of the flight preceding the crash from Dusseldorf to Barcelona, that is to say, two hours before the takeoff of the reverse journey. The investigators noted troubling facts that occurred on the outbound flight and that foreshadowed the worst on the return. In the first case, shortly before the descent to the Catalan capital, Patrick Sondheimer had already been absent for several minutes during which Lubitz had taken the opportunity to position the altitude selector at 30 meters several times. When the captain appeared, he set it back to the required value, and the landing went off without a hitch. The BEA concluded that his strange actions could be interpreted as practicing before the act. During the flight from Barcelona to Dusseldorf, a variation was necessary, to mechanically lock the door leading to the cockpit to prevent the captain from intervening and to precipitate the plane in its fall. If until now there was the benefit of doubt, such as loss of consciousness of the co-pilot or a malfunctioning lock, that doubt was now definitely gone. Lubitz exploited the system that prevents any intrusion from the outside, a measure adopted by all airlines since the September 11, 2001 attacks. By dint of preventing a terrorist threat, we ended up making it possible to isolate an airman with dark thoughts. At this point of the investigation, the question remained, was this a mass murderer or a suicidal young man? Born in 1987 in Neuburg on Danube, Bavaria, raised by an organist mother and neglected by a businessman father who was rarely present, Andreas was predestined for aviation from an early age. His childhood friends describe him as charming, intelligent, if a little obsessive. You only had to enter his room, whose walls were covered with posters of airplanes, to understand that the boy had his head turned to the skies. At the age of 14, he enrolled in an aeronautical club in Montebar and flew his first gliders. A video archive shows him from behind at the controls, filmed by his instructor. 
From time to time, he turns around, a big smile on his face. Nothing seems to make him happier than leaving the ground. After graduating from high school, the cost of flying hours forced him to take a small food job. But at the end of the summer of 2008, he joined the Lufthansa Pilot School in Bremen, then a training course in Phoenix, Arizona. The training was soon interrupted when Andreas fell into a depression. He was repatriated to Germany, where the university hospital in Dusseldorf took him into therapy for a month. Even at this stage, the doctors detected an acute paranoia in him, but nothing prevented him from pursuing his ambitions. After his convalescence, he began again, persevered, and in October 2010 finally obtained his license for commercial flights, restricted, however, by the mention SIC, second in command. In other words, he was not qualified enough to become a captain. But that doesn't matter. On the ground he withers, in the sky he flourishes. He might as well spend most of his life there. In 2011, Andreas was hired as a steward by Lufthansa and reached the rank of co-pilot in 2014. At 27 years old, despite the accomplished dream and the accumulated flight hours, his demons resurface and do not cease to plunge him back into his ways. A few months before the crash, an ordinary car accident caused a detached retina, and his eyesight deteriorated as a result. Horrified at the idea of being declared unfit to fly, he loses sleep, multiplies his consultations with general practitioners, ophthalmologists, ENT specialists, and psychiatrists, and writes to them in an email exchange. As I am afraid of going blind and I continue to be fixated on my eyes, I keep on repeating this idea and the stress increases. An armada of 18 doctors, seen in the space of 11 weeks, fails to assuage his neuroses. One of them, interviewed by the police afterwards, admits to having thought at the time, my God, I don't want that man to be at the controls of a plane. The practitioners involved had been forbidden by their patient to consult each other. It is possible that some of them were not even aware of his profession, and, even though they were bound by medical secrecy, they were unable to report their concerns to the authorities or to their colleagues employed by Lufthansa. The latter, who are responsible for regularly examining the pilots, were thus fooled by Lubitz, who concealed his inner pain, refused to pass on the work stoppages to his employer, and continued to work. Once the truth was hidden, his family and his superiors did not suspect anything. No obstacle, no protection prevented him from holding back his impulses and from going through with it. There will always be a debate as to the true nature of his act. Many still think that his psychological background should not be taken into account, that he did not seek to commit suicide, but rather to provoke a massacre, to acquire a kind of omnipotence by deciding on the right of life or death of 149 people. The astonishing way in which he kept his calm in the last minutes before the crash is all the more ambiguous. A state of constriction, characteristic of someone who ends his life, already gone before he even takes the plunge, or a total lack of empathy for his victims. 
A former friend of Lubitz's definitely sowed the seeds of trouble when she told the media that she once heard him say, One day I'm going to do something that will change the system. Everyone will know my name and remember it. A pilot does not have the right to be sick. Either he lies or he is sidelined. A terrible reality confirmed by an American study which quantified the presence of antidepressant substances in the bodies of pilots who died during an aviation accident in the United States. Between 1990 and 2001, 1.46% of the cases were positive for psychotropic drugs. The BEA, the French bureau that investigates when a plane crashes, released its conclusions in 2016 and listed three key points that caused the disaster. Andreas Lubitz's fear of being unemployed if his health problems became known, the resulting financial consequences, and the gray area in German regulations when a public threat is covered by medical confidentiality. As a result, the psychological assessments of airline pilots are being strengthened, examiners are being better monitored, and random alcohol and drug tests are being carried out on crews. The measures were adopted by the European Union in 2018 and apply to all airlines. In the cockpits, the four eyes rule is also applied. Two people are required at all times, and if one of the pilots is absent, a steward replaces him immediately. Finally, it should be noted that an investigation is still ongoing in France. Three judges are still working to determine the responsibility of German wings in the accident as well as its true knowledge of the health condition of its co-pilot. The parent company, Lufthansa, is not really in a hurry for the investigation to succeed, and in the meantime is dipping into its fortune to compensate the families of the victims. Today, on the site of the crash, there is a memorial sculpture, hoisted on a base on the side of the mountain. The memorial is composed of 149 metal rods, raised to the sky and symbolizing each passenger and crew member lost. Needless to say, Andreas Lubitz did not have the right to his own metal rod. <laughs>